This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, welcome to this week's um, podcast, Urban Political Podcast. Um, our theme for today is a little bit different, having talked about uh, lots of the politics and spatiality of, uh, 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 of the COVID nineteen situation. Today we're going to focus on how the situation is affecting teaching and learning within the discipline of urban studies and more generally within uh, universities. Uh, we have two guests, Robert, Robin Chang from the Technical University of Dortmund and Meg Holden from Simon Fraser University. So to get us started, um, could you just Generally introduce yourselves, we know where you're from, but tell us a little about you about your work, your fields of uh, specialization, perhaps starting with you, Robin. Sure, yeah, I can kick us off. So um, I'm a PhD researcher um, based at the Department of European Planning Cultures here in Dortmund, and I've been working since about 2015-2016 on my PhD here, um, looking at temporary and adaptive uses. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a Canadian uh, who's been based in Germany for since 2012. Um, so I, I have been educated or and also practiced planning in, in Canada, in BC. Um, and my interests have been, um, in my research, have been inspired by uh, experiences working in the professional fields of dealing with temporary use permits and permitting processes. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Ross and Marcus. Very happy to be part of this podcast. My name is Meg Holden. I am currently the director of the Urban Studies Program at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. And I am part of the, I'm a professor of urban studies as well as geography there. I have a background in planning, pragmatic philosophy, and sustainable cities research. And so my body of work is about really how to get people to experience the city differently and to um, develop attachments to the city that are sufficient to change behaviors and habits in order to um, motivate more sustainably oriented and justice oriented behaviors. How can we characterize these challenges in short, medium, long long-term ranges and how can we best think about them in, in terms of things that we, we can we can we can handle and develop solutions to so um, that's a great question and something that I think uh, a lot of instructors um, as well as researchers might be going through right now um, I can speak to my experiences with uh, the students so far as well as what's happening in, in um, within our institution um, some of the short-term challenges that we've definitely encountered are those that are more infrastructural. And, and what I mean by that is, is hard as well, soft, so hard in terms of um, internet access. So having uh, the actual um, space or access to technology for online learning as um, the distance, the physical distancing restrictions have now come into to being. And then also softer infrastructural uh, issues such as um, access to software uh, as well as the learning tools that we need. So within our uh, faculty as well as our university, um, it's become clear that we were not ready for dealing with COVID-19 and teaching 
um, in the wake of COVID-19 because we just did not have the, the access to the, all the tools and the software. Um, in addition to that, there's uh, so trying to adjust to that. Um, we've also had some inequities revealed in terms of what students can afford to have some of these um, technologies and, and um, tools at home. So other colleagues of mine have um, basically come to realize that some of their students might live at home without necessarily adequate Wi-Fi connection to uh, be able to facilitate Zoom um, or um, web conference meetings or, or um, online learning, mass learning um, opportunities or formats because they only had mobile devices with data. So uh, the German um, data plans that they have here are a lot more restricted and more expensive than, say, the Canadian ones. So not everybody has the luxury of, of that immediate access to this type of infrastructure. Um, some of the students were also very highly reliant on um, access to library as well as co- campus uh, Wi-Fi. So these inequities about how do we adjust to um, these students or how do we make it easier for them to be able to access um, the tools that they need to learn um, and what, how, yeah, how, how do we facilitate that was definitely something that um, was important. Um, and also the procurement of all of the necessary licenses for all the, the applications, the software applications required for tools um, or um, the setting up of VPN um, networks and, and connections so that we could at least um, facilitate these connections for them. Uh, I think this is still a ch- consistent challenge for us at this point. So I know that a lot of our students who work with geographical information systems um, are still not sure as to how exactly within the next semester uh, they will be able to consistently access the labs, the computer labs that they might need for um, their um, spatial plans and then and then on top of that, you have this issue of capacity training. So I was lucky in that I had um, colleagues um, that I was, my colleague that I was working with, we were already pretty fluent with Confluence, which is the tool that we're using. But there are other teachers and instructors and colleagues who don't necessarily um, have those skills. So knowing which tools are appropriate for what type of format, um, how to actually use them. So we've witnessed a huge swell of tutorials and online resources made available for um, for for these um, colleagues, but um, it has been a very steep learning curve, and no doubt this is not something that's restricted to us. Um, but I can imagine that uh, for a lot of institutions and instructors who haven't had to use online and virtual learning environments um, within the past month, basically month or month and a half, they've had to make themselves um, uh, aware of how what the tools are and how they work. Um, and so you have this very steep mainstreaming of all these tools. And now, of course, there's in our institution the question of um, how long will this go for? So we know that the next semester will be online and digital as well. Um, but what what are the more medium, I guess, and long-term impacts coming out of this? These are um, some, some questions that we still have to more seriously consider. That's a, a really good summary, probably, internationally in in universities and colleges around the world um, of the kinds of stresses and strains and steep learning curves that Robin mentions that 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 students and educators have experienced the longer term prospects um, that you just asked about I that's where I return to my questions about experience and what kinds of experiences students and then ultimately educators too do and don't have 
access to. So um, Ross, before this podcast, we had a, a, a bit of an exchange around uh, the, the paper that was re- published by Isabel Angulovsky and, and uh, Catalan colleagues in, in Barcelona um, proposing an ethics of care emerging in academic praxis uh, in the post-COVID era. And I wonder, and I think that care, of course, you know, is the primary concern now, but in a longer term, what, you know, what happens when we don't have the experiences that we have had the benefit of um, in the past, let's say, five years, 10 years, when the experience of learning, either in a classroom with our colleagues and our classmates who challenge us, um, you know, in a in a physical way as well as an intellectual way, because we're sharing the same space, we're sharing the same air, we're sharing the same airtime, um, and then the experiential learning more phenomenologically when we're out there in the city, actually experiencing the rush of traffic, experiencing the frustration of uh, transit that doesn't work or crowded sidewalks, uh, experiencing the the smell of engineering structures and, and pollutants and gardens. Um, and so I wonder about the, the notion of an ethic of experience uh, when we are sort of submitting to this new era of accepting that because we can't protect the sanitary nature of our students' um, environment in the classroom, therefore we shouldn't subject them to the experience of being in the classroom um, with one another, let alone all of the complications um, uh, now that have been introduced and that are going to plague the very idea of doing experiential learning out in the city or in an international context, certainly. Indeed, yeah. And and to some extent, um, Meg, you and I, we had tried to, uh, along with a few other colleagues um, and, and our students, um, so Christian Lemke, as well as Rebecca Gunnarsson, capture this in uh, some of our, our, our written work and look at how um, a notion of discomfort zones or, or these formats that... Um, encouraged or created opportunities and spaces for students to look at these um, encounters of uh, that, that risk kind of um, the comfortable surroundings of the standard classroom for this more real life uh, and experienced type of learning um, and what it meant in terms of not only providing them with these sensory uh, impressions but then also this more emotional and probably more um, personal experience of understanding that there are limitations to their understandings and, and the way that they see the world, but that this can be, um, we can help them approach these, these boundaries and we can also help them adjust these boundaries in understanding the world um, and understanding the, the realities of a kilometer of subsidence or um, that there's height that is associated with um, highway connectivity. Um, and this is something that we found really important because um, it is a notion that accompanies a lot of uncertainty that um, happens in uh, urban studies, urban planning. Um, I mean, the, the purpose of, uh, or kind of the principles behind um, urban planning for sure is, is looking at how to manage and to um, prepare for uncertainty in, in, in future scenarios. And um, now we're being uh, 
forced to confront this in a different light with the uncertainties of how do we do this in, in the classroom setting as well? Um, and what are the right questions to ask so that we can think, we can be more thoughtful um, in not only addressing responding, but maybe creating the legacies for um, a better learning and uh, teaching environment um, with specific fields that relate to urban studies um, specifically. And just picking up on that, um, moving forward, uh, do we, um, what kind of opportunities do we, do we witness, do we see against this, this background? So Robin and I were talking about a couple of different strategies that, that we have seen or that we are pursuing in the immediate. One of, so I had a field school that was canceled this summer. We were intending to go to Helsinki uh, and that course is still going ahead, believe it or not, in a, in a mostly virtual format. So we will have guest lectures from Helsinki, um, virtual visits and those kinds of things it uh, and some and some language um we're lucky enough to have some some language speakers as well but we're also insisting on sending students out on their own um to travel in the city of vancouver uh to designated sites that have finnish history or that illustrates something else about um, some of the notions of, of the Nordic version of urban sustainability and resilience that we're, that we're discussing. In order to, and it's a, sad kind of, it's a sad kind of thing to send students out by themselves for an experience that really should be much richer. It should be immersive in a foreign, in a strange environment that is unaccustomed, that doesn't have those sort of comforts of home. It should be um, the experience of community with other students who are also similarly put off balance and in this unknown context so that they can have the experience of working through that discomfort and those problems together, which are aspects of the learning that we're losing out on. Uh, but nonetheless, it does preserve that experiential element of learning, which is so powerful. and. Um, and I think just important in the medium term context of recognizing that not all learning happens within these nice rectangular bounds of a, an elect electronic device and what it shows. So I'd be curious uh, if you could uh, reflect on um, your pedagogical uh, insights uh, in the current moment also in view of what this means uh, with respect to marginalized population and uh, the the approach uh, of planning uh, towards um, a very diverse uh, and a social environment uh, i remember working uh, with um, and homeless led organization in New York City, we always had the impression that especially the planning profession was kind of planning over our heads and there was very little interactions in terms of uh, drawing out the expertise of, of, of homeless uh, people themselves. So, so 
I guess I'm, I'm looking at um, this notion of experience that you have expanded on and uh, try to insert here the question of, okay, how, how is it possible to, um, to allow for an experience of, of planners that is interactive with their social environment, with the different, the, the diversity of stakeholders that, that are involved in planning and how, how is that uh, going to be incorporated at the current moment uh, uh, in, in the planning, uh, uh, in the teaching of urban design and planning? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Let me take a stab at it. Um, one of the things that happens when you're taking students out uh, into the field, into the city, and attempting to learn from different experiential learning environments is that you have the opportunity to encounter people who would never set foot in on a university campus. Um, why? Because it's intimidating. And even, you know, my university campus is, uh, we're actually downtown Vancouver, um, right near uh, Waterfront Station. It's an extreme, and it's right on the border of the, on the border, it's not a border, but right on the edge of the downtown east side neighborhood, which is um, a, a deeply, a neighborhood of deeply entrenched poverty. Um, and it, we have an open door policy. And um, while to me that seems open enough, we have um, certainly expectations that people will not be prevented from coming into the, into the university. And yet uh, there are still barriers that make uh, people who have never had the experience of university learning, let alone participation in a planning process, um, open up to them. And so by going out into the neighborhoods, um, students are able to, and planners are able to experience the, that gap in a way that probably never would have really sunk in um, without that visceral experience of just how excluded people uh, who are on this sharing the same sidewalk as you um, or the same park or the same alleyway might be. Um, and by learning practices of respectful interaction, um, we can come to understand empathy for uh, different groups and we can understand the different perspectives that especially poor and marginalized people have on the impacts of planning. So uh, one of the things that seems to be coming up uh, in this sort of immediate rush for re urban responses to a COVID recovery are related to urban design and the physical redesign of spaces. And some of these things are exciting because for planners, because they point to some of the things that planners have been trying to push in cities for a number of years, like car-free streets, like uh, opportunities for seating and um, outdoor patio spaces being expanded into the public realm and into parks, um, spreading out pedestrian and bicycling options. Well, those things are certainly part of a sustainable city's agenda. But if that 
effort is pursued because of a public health demand that we maintain six feet distance from one another at all times, um, and in a context in which community engagement principles have been suspended because it's presumed to be unsanitary and not in the interests of public health to engage people uh, in the expansive way that we now demand in cities like Vancouver, then that work is being done to the detriment of the people who depend on those spaces because they have nowhere else to go. And so that's that's very troubling. And, um, and there needs to be not just that, and there needs to be the experience of coming into an encounter with poor and marginalized populations in order for planners to understand that. There needs to be the opportunity to in, for poor and marginalized people to engage in the planning in a way that is not considered to be unsafe and unsanitary. And there needs to be a way to welcome poor and marginalized people into the conversation about what the solutions are to cities in this post, well, we're not in the post-COVID area, but in this response to, to the pandemic too. Yeah. Yeah, I can only um, also support that as well. Um, bringing this back to more recent experiences with the students um, and the group that I had had never really interacted nor had the chance to be introduced to what um, an Aboriginal culture or heritage looked like or, or who that was. And um, that was their first chance really um, it, during our time in Vancouver to meet with um, educators or urban agricultural activists, um, as well as other students who had that exposure or, or could represent that type of diversity and, and a different, a very different narrative of inequality um, that they just have no access to here in Germany. Um, and so I, I also do find that very uh, worrisome because the world of learning um, as well as um, how, we, how we sense the type of learning uh, or sense the types of inequalities and diversities that are re represented through this learning is, is definitely restricted now. Um, but I think that it is important uh, to not only underline that you know empathy has to be a priority as as an outcome of this learning but, but to be proactive about maybe seeking uh, the channels and the mediums to continue including these populations um, and these audiences I guess one thing is I, I kind of feel like we're maybe sounding as if um, Robin and I had the whole system of experiential and field-based learning licked <laughs> before this and that it was all worked out and I don't think that's true and I'm pretty sure Robin wouldn't try and suggest that that was true either um, there and 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 the fact that field learn field school learning was still hard that it wasn't always authentic that students did take shortcuts and uh, ignore encounters with the other and um, and and faculty member leaders did too and there is a whole host of sort of intercultural challenges that we face, not to mention the challenges of just getting along together with a group of people who you didn't know a few weeks ago in a in an immersive and intensive environment. So I, I, I don't want to come off myself as sounding like uh, I had a, a recipe or a formula for, um, you know, turning the city into a mirror through field school education. but 
the um, experiential dimension added to the reflective dimension added to the necessity of social mixing um, puts a responsibility uh, and an opportunity for empathy onto 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 learners, students, and educators both, um, as well as humility that we can't replicate in the classroom. I'd be curious to hear also more about, uh, or maybe you could uh, briefly uh, at least expand on this uh, notion of risk and discomfort, you know, two notions that you seem to have embraced um, in your earlier comments and uh, that it is necessary to basically confront students uh, with risk and with discomfort. And I wonder if you could tell a little uh, more about how as educators um, you see these uh, notions uh, playing out or and how you are Uh, required to regulate or to what extent and how you want to regulate these notions and uh, uh, maybe then on top of that uh, how do this uh, taking discomfort and risk as as a pillar uh, of pedagogy how 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 does this relate to the current moment in which security and safety seem to be Uh, the imperative. From my perspective, I see teaching students about urban sustainability and urban resilience as an exercise in teaching students complexity thinking and challenging myself to also allow more variables and more complexities and more feedback mechanisms, more trade-offs into my own way of seeing the city and seeing the options for making changes to it. And there's, and so really that my push towards add, and that, and that is risky. It's risky, particularly in the context of, you know what, we have an urban planning model. It's called modernism. It has existed uh, since the dawn of planning as a, as a profession and as an area of study, there are, particular benefits that that modernist planning model can point to in terms of adding to people's safety and physical health and security. Um, the, the, uh, the, the drawbacks of that model, planners have spent the past 20 years enumerating and articulating, but they, they fade into the background um, when a crisis like this one, but others in the past as well, hit, especially in the, in the face of this sort of drive towards efficient responses. And that drive towards efficient responses also exists in students' educational choices, right? Because everybody's trying to make choices that are efficient for their learning, for their graduation, for their career development, for their ability to you know, become that professional or that urban actor that they see as being valuable. But students don't necessarily know what they ought to be doing in life. And that's kind of what, to me, university learning should be about. It's about discovering new pathways and new modes of inquiry and new things to think about and study and do in the world 
that you didn't even know were possibilities before you started. So if all we're doing in teaching people about planning is teaching them a tried and true model that has particular efficiencies um, and is comfortable to impart to students, then we're certainly not allowing an opening of the city towards thinking differently and acting differently, which we need to do if we want to move towards urban resilience or urban sustainability. And I think that there's there was this sense before the pandemic hit that we were losing the battle towards more sustainable cities, more resilient cities. So there is a sense of hope that we might have an opening for changes in that direction. But my concern is that we are not going to advance. We're not going to move into that open space if we don't take risks because there's it's not an efficient thing to do, right? If you're taking risks, that means that you will fail. Um, there will be there will be um, time lost. There will be effort lost. But that has to be privileged as the process of inquiry when we're trying to m- teach students to be leaders of effective urban social change. Yeah, indeed. Um... And um, this also is a great segue into this more meta level of um, thinking behind uh, discomfort zones in, in that uh, we we refer to uh, the transformative learning, learning principles um, from Mesro that um, go through basically nine phases in which um, personal and individual interactions and, and encounters um, allow for um, reflective processes, um, the redefinition of meaning for for individuals, so that they can make better sense of the world, um, which is particularly important, especially as the world changes even more. Um, we see that with COVID nineteen, with almost weekly or in some cases daily updates, changes um, to how we can interact or, or just be on the streets or, or must be at home. Um, so, in this sense, uh, we do have to take this risk. Um, think if we want to be able to be confident in our abilities um, and our students' abilities um, as urbanists who have to grapple and um, in some way um, manage the uncertainty in the future. Um, So while it might not make most complete sense now, um, there is the chance that taking this risk and, and being uncomfortable in this journey of looking at, okay, what we don't know now, but how we can maybe um, approach it uh, could provide a better uh, way of dealing not only with COVID-19, but other uh, greater um, normative or imperatives that we're dealing with, such as climate change or uh, global inequity or um, something that we've been made even more extremely aware of, um, global production chains, um, the whole gamut. Great, thank you very much, uh, Robin and Meg, uh, for reflecting with Thanks you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.